You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. You know, many may remember this happened just over the last year and a half or so. Charlie Sheen was let go of his job uh, being the star of a very, very popular sitcom. He came into this place where he sort of seemed to lose control of himself and he was talking about how no matter what, he was still winning. Be let go and he's winning. And he makes some interesting points about winning. Sadly, Charlie has no idea really of what it means to win. I think what, what Charlie Sheen means when he's talking about winning is that if you can get everything you want from life and in life and out of life, then indeed you are winning. And before many of us jump to a conclusion or to judgment, uh, some of us can admit, if we would, that we don't totally disagree with Charlie Sheen on this. I mean, getting what you want in life can be a great thing. It's not a bad thing. I wanted a godly wife. I got one. I wanted a new shirt. I bought one. You, many of you wanted a house. You purchased one. Getting what you want out of life isn't necessarily a bad thing. I don't see where the problem is with that. I, but, but does having these things mean really, though, that, that we're winning? Charlie Sheen certainly seems to think that they do. And sadly, many people feel as though winning in life amounts to money or success or a healthy relationship or marriage or some sort of self-satisfaction. And though none of these things, again, are a bad thing, possessing them doesn't mean that you are really winning in life. Taking this approach to life and defining winning as this really can just lead you to what the Bible would call idolatry. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything that can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And of course, if you do not believe in Jesus, then possessing these things, having the, the wife or the spouse you want, or the kids you want, or the house you want, or the job you want, or the amount of money in your bank account you want, if you, have, if you do not have Jesus, possessing those things become really, in a sense, your only hope. That becomes your definition of winning, and maybe by cultural standards, you are winning. And without Christ, possessing these things is really the only hope I have of a meaningful life. And though I believe that Charlie Sheen is sadly mistaken on what it means to win, I do think he had some wisdom in this montage of interviews. Because he did make a statement that I do agree with. In life, there is winning and there is losing. And I do believe that. I believe in life there is winning and losing. When I, when I grew up and I played sports or I was you know, competing in the various competitions, I didn't get a ribbon for participation. If I lost, I lost. If I won, I got a trophy. If I lost, I watched the kids who won get a trophy. If you're trying to get that promotion, only one person wins the job. Not everybody gets the job, and you don't get a conciliatory participant's rib, ribbon for you know, doing real well in the interview. 
In life, there really is winning and losing, but if I look at the world through the lens of a cross, then I see that in, in life, there really is winning and losing. With Christ, I can win. Without Christ, I lose everything. There is winners and there are losers in that respect. With Christ, victory. Without Christ, tragic loss. Loss of soul, loss of relationship with God, loss of hope, loss of peace, loss of joy. There really is nothing in between. Another thing that Charlie Sheen said that I agree with is that winning is how you perceive it. And you make choices to win. I do agree with that. I think winning really is how Charlie Sheen perceives it. And in the midst of his life seemingly falling apart, he was choosing to win. Whatever that may mean. I don't disagree with that either. See, I don't think Paul would disagree with that at all. And when we look through Colossians and we read the first two chapters of Colossians, all the things that Paul is simply trying to communicate is, is really simple and very plain. You can win in life or you really can lose in life. And his thesis is that with Christ as your everything, you can win in life. But without Christ, even if you had everything else, without Christ, even though you have it all, you will still lose everything. And so Paul, when he gets to chapter 2, and we looked at this text last week, but we'll just repeat it one more time in verse 14. He says that Christ on the cross erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2, verse 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there because that's where we're going to be. And he's saying that all of these things that stood against us, that opposed us, that was opposed to God and opposed to gospel and opposed to us, all of the things that, that whisper true defeat in our lives, Christ nailed it to the cross. He, he took it on himself when he was nailed to the cross. And so then Paul doesn't stop there because he says, verse 15, he, talking about Christ, listen to the language disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, he triumphed over them by him. Now, we talked about how every word that Paul uses is a word of intention. And so when Paul uses the word triumph here, he chooses an image to portray. And I need you to stay with me on this. This is very important. Paul could have chosen any other word for victory, but he chose the word triumph. Because in the Greek culture, when you're reading this with Greek ears, when you hear the word triumph, that is a very political and military term. And so when Paul says that God in Christ triumphed over the enemies, what he is stirring in people's mind is the Roman triumph, the Roman victory parade. See, when Rome would defeat an enemy, they would grab the enemy and they would throw a victory parade, a triumphant parade through the cities of Rome. And all of the citizens would gather around and wait on this parade and they would yell and they would scream and they would celebrate. All the while, Rome would publicly have their enemy on this chariot and disgrace him publicly or disgrace them publicly before all people. And this parade would almost always end with the execution of the enemy. It was Romans' victory parade. 
Paul, when he uses the word triumph, and then he says in the very same text that God in Christ on the cross disgraced the enemy publicly, disarmed them publicly, humiliated them publicly. Paul is choosing a very violent image to communicate the truth of the cross. Paul is, in a very real way, Envisioning this demonstration of God's victory over the devil and sin and death and all powers on earth and helping us understand that in Christ he shamed them all publicly. God is using this violent imagery to show us that in Christ we have no fear of judgment because the enemy has been disgraced. The enemy has been defeated. The cross issues powerlessness to all things that come against The gospel. And the resurrection proves this to be true. God, in a very real way, in this text, is inviting us into a victory parade. The unchangeable truth is that in Christ, God has defeated sin and death. And the practical truth is that he invites us to live in this victory parade because in Christ, we too are winning. Victory is ours. In Christ, the point of this text is that in Christ, we are winning. We can make our own YouTube video and say, duh, winning because of the cross. But yet the sad tragedy of this text, the sad tragedy of our lives is that many of us are standing by watching the victory parade pass on by because we aren't winning. Even though Paul has taken great pains to say that in Christ you are winning because God won, we don't live as though we are winning. The truth of it is, now if you'll go to the next slide, we can have no fear of losing. We cannot lose that which God himself secured. Do we understand that? We can't lose what God secured. If you secured your victory, if I secured my victory, then I can easily lose that. It's the truth of what Paul is saying is that in Christ we have victory. You cannot lose the victory because God is the one who secured the victory if you trust that he secured the victory. Now, if you choose not to trust that and you choose to live against that, that's a whole other conversation for a whole other day. The truth of this text is that in Christ we are winning. But many of us live as though we're being Defeated day by day after day. We don't feel as though we are winning. Our finances say we aren't winning. Our marriage reminds us we're not winning. Our kids scream at us reminding us that we're not winning. My singleness reminds me that I'm not winning. My anxiety reminds me that I'm not winning. Yet the cross still stands. When I think of winning, I think of Joan Chasey. She lived just a few days shy of her 94th birthday. Her funeral and celebration of life service was this Friday. Dave Faith did a beautiful job with that service. Gifted man that day. Joan and her husband, Harry, were longtime members of this church. In fact, many of us are here today because of people like Joan and Harry. And many others who have gone before us, we stand on their shoulders to celebrate what we call Williamsburg Christian Church as God used them powerfully to do his work here. Joan and Harry, from what I have been told, are beautiful people. I didn't know Joan personally. I met her once. 
She was terribly sick and suffered greatly the last three years of her life. But I learned so much about her at her funeral and her celebration of life service and listening to her family. As I listened to Dave tell stories of her, I thought of what it means to win in life. As I listened to her great-grandchildren read a poem that she wrote in her journal while suffering, I thought of winning. As I heard her grandson Scott share pieces of her journal, some entries that she penned at the deepest and darkest places of her life, I thought of winning. One of the stories that Scott, her grandson, shared came from a journal entry the day after her beloved husband, Harry, had passed away after 75 years of being together. Listen to what she wrote the day after the death of her beloved. The Lord called Harry home last night. I am exhausted, but there is a joy in knowing he was at home in heaven. At last his pilgrimage is over. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Harry and I knew each other for 75 years and grew in trust for our creator together. The Lord blesses me with comfort, and he's the only one who understands how hard it is to not put a burden on people. I'm learning that joy and grief walk together. The grief of knowing Harry was gone and the joy of knowing that he has no more pain. But in all those years, our love had grown tentacles deep in our hearts. When they were torn apart, part of me was ripped away. Our emotions are deeply seated, and it's hard to live with an empty seat. When you hear that journal entry, you hear grief, and you hear still at the same time, the dissonance of joy and grief. When I read this journal entry, I think of what it means to embrace the victory found in Jesus because even in the midst of her deep despair, this is the heart of a woman filled with faith and dedicated to learning what it means to lean upon the triumph God offered in Christ. You hear it even in this honest and sad and joyful journal entry. Of course, now Jonah's passed on And the world, and even we, would say that plain and simply, Jonah's dead. But even in her suffering and from a full heart of faith, she wrote this in her journal. Listen to what she says. Someday you will hear, I am dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall have left this worn-out clay tentament into a house that is immortal, a body death cannot taint. I was born of the flesh in 1918. I was born of God's spirit in 1962. That which is born of the flesh will die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. This is what it means to win. And to live as though we are winning. Her writings sound almost apostolic, don't they? See, I think Paul is just trying to give us greater clarity here in his letter. And so in our text, in chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 16. Paul is going to continue to give greater clarity. And when we read this, we're going to think, what does all this have to do with winning? Well, we'll give a little context here. But don't lose Paul's overall theme if you read this section of Scripture in light of the rest of the letter The thread that Christ alone is everything and that he is enough is very, very plain to see. 
Colossians 2, verse 16, he says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is the Messiah. Let no one disqualify you insisting on aesthetic practices in the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons develops with growth from God. Here's some context here. Paul is just simply trying to reinforce what he said in chapter 2, verse 8. Look at your Bibles, if you will, at verse 8. Paul said, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. Paul is just simply now becoming more specific in this section of text to try and say, hey, all of those things that that people around you are offering in terms of what is required for your salvation, such as eating the right foods and drinking the right drinks and observing the right religious holidays and and the aesthetic practices. Aesthetic practices would simply mean like self-humiliation or self-mutilation where like cutting yourself in the name of your religion, which was very, very prevalent back then and even still today, or even the aesthetic practice of fasting so much and so desperately that it's dangerous as a requirement to be accepted before God. Paul is saying anyone who offers these things to you, anyone who says that you need to have a certain level of humility as demonstrated by, you know, ascetic practices, or anyone who says you need to worship angels or worship this sort of magic, or anyone who says to you, That your relationship with God isn't legit until you've seen something in some sort of mystical, supernatural, heavenly realm. Some experience. Paul is saying, that's not gospel. Because all of those things cannot sustain lasting transformation and change in hope. All of those things Paul said in verse 8 that he recaptures in 16 through 23 are just simply empty. And to say that they're required in order to have a conviction and assurance in your forgiveness and acceptance by God based upon Christ is just vain. And it will leave you washed up and hopeless. And what was happening is these people were gathering around the Colossian Christians and making judgments upon them on this illegitimate basis of eating the right food, drinking the right drink, holding true to to the right religious calendar and other various forms of religion that moved them away from the cross. See, because in the Jewish world, food and drink restrictions were common and they were commanded. Matter of fact, these same restrictions played a part in a variety of religious practices in the pagan and Hellenistic world. If you wanted to worship the god of vegetation, Attis, then you were commanded to observe a rigorous and dangerous period of fasting. If you wanted to worship the god Persephone in Greece and be initiated into her cult, then you were required to eat and drink certain things in order to experience certain mystical visions that would legitimize your initiation into this religion. See, when it came to festivals, the same was true in a very real way with Judaism. God had commanded a certain calendar to be observed just as he commanded certain food and drink 
to be observed. But the purpose of this was to mark the difference between his people and the world. And so then not to observe the food and drink observances and not to observe the Jewish calendar was in, in, in turn saying that you didn't belong to Yahweh, you didn't belong to God. And so Judaizing Christians even came into the Colossian church and said, hey, I, I hear about the cross, but if you really want your relationship with God to be legit, if you really want acceptance and forgiveness, then you must eat this, not eat that, drink this, not drink that, observe this and do that, and then you will be accepted and forgiven by God. And Paul says... That is not true. That is anti-gospel. That is false gospel. That is empty philosophy and doctrines of men. See, here's something we learn. You may think, what does it have to do with 2012? See, this hasn't changed, though. In, in the church, even today, there are some who sink and, and some who teach and some who even believe that unless you've had a particular experience of God, your salvation isn't legit. Or that unless you observe certain calendar days or certain other things that aren't even mentioned in Scripture at all, that your salvation isn't real. That your acceptance before God is not only hindered, but illegitimate. See, I came from a tradition that did teach something that the Bible never spoke to for or against as a condition of one's acceptance before holy God. And Paul comes in and says, that is anti-gospel. That is not true. Because he says the cross is what proves and stands true that our forgiveness and that our acceptance before God is real because God secured what we could never, ever secure. And so here's what we probably should learn See, this church comes from a tradition and a heritage that claims this very simple statement, that we speak where the Bible speaks and that we're silent where the Bible is silent. That's fair because we're just simply saying we want to be a people of the Word of God who do what God asks us to do and that, and that alone. The problem is a lot of times churches have a lot more to say about what the Bible doesn't speak to than what does. And Paul is saying anytime you mark a condition of one's acceptance before God, that is a dangerous, dangerous line to toe. If God has said it, if he has commanded it, if it leads you to the cross, it is beautiful. But if it leads you away from the cross, it is empty. So what does this mean for us? It's just an issue of attachment. It's an issue of what is your acceptance and forgiveness from God attached to. See, forgiveness and acceptance in Christ is not attached to a religious experience or a personal experience or some manufactured experience. Your forgiveness and my forgiveness, your acceptance and my acceptance in Christ is attached to the cross because in the cross and resurrection is where victory and triumph is found. It isn't found anywhere else. It is not attached to mission trips. It is not attached to religious activities or spiritual experiences and the warm and fuzzies that you get during that old hymn that you used to sing or that new hymn that you sing. Your forgiveness and acceptance and relationship with God is not attached to those things. It is attached to the cross. I thank God that my forgiveness and acceptance and relationship with God isn't attached to my emotions and my feelings. That it isn't attached to something beyond my emotions, beyond my feelings. That it is attached to the cross. Because I sit across the table for many people who say, I just don't feel God anymore. 
The psalmist wrestled with that. Maybe God is trying to get your attention. Maybe there's unconfessed sin in your life. Maybe there's anxiety and other things in your life that's, that's moving that victorious voice of God out of your life. But God not being felt by you doesn't change the fact that God still loves you, died for you, lives for you, and wants you to experience the victory that he has for you. But yet I heard from people many times, I just don't, I don't feel God. And then, and then sadly, the next step of that is not only do I no longer feel God, I, I, I begin to doubt God. And, and then I've seen the next step, which is not only do I n- doubt God, I no longer worship God. And that is just the voice of the devil saying that your relationship with God is attached to something more than the cross. See, that's what Paul means. Your acceptance from God comes from what Christ has done. Your forgiveness comes from the truth of verse 15, or frankly, the whole book of Colossians, that Christ has done what we could not do. Your forgiveness and acceptance is not attached to what you see or what you do not see. Church, when you cannot see the purpose of God, then trust in the presence of God. But if you cannot feel the presence of God, then choose to trust in the power of God. And if you cannot trust in the power of God, then just choose to trust in the promise of God that is revealed on the cross. Because that is what never changes. That is what the world can never violate. That is what your feelings cannot change. That is what you see cannot change. That is what your goodness or lack thereof cannot change. That is what no one can change. It is not what about people think of you. It is about what God thinks. Joan Chasey in her journal wrote this statement. She said, as I grow older, I care less and less about what people think about me and more and more about what God thinks of me. I expect to be with him much longer than you. See, this is winning. Because too often times we get caught up in what our neighbor's going to think. If I come before the church and confess a failing marriage, what, is, what are they going to think about me? If I come before my friend and confess this, this seeming failure of being a parent and that my kids are crazy, what are they going to think about me? If I come to the church and, and do as the Bible says and, and try to confess my sin to a brother and, and, and have healing, what are they going to say about me when I'm not around? And we begin to think what other people matter, what other people think matters than what God matters. And what Paul is trying to say is the cross says it doesn't matter what they think because what matters is what God has done. And what you may find is your brothers and sisters in Christ may just simply think the same thing you think, which is, wow, I need grace in Jesus too, and you just end up journeying to the cross together. The tragedy, church, is we attach our acceptance and forgiveness to other things, and we live lives that just aren't winning. We live lives that are experiencing defeat. See, the truth is you can be close to God and feel his presence when you're sitting in your cube at work or when you're washing dishes because your relationship with God is attached to the cross. You can win. The resurrection stands as proof. See, Joan, in her journal, 
left her last will and testament to her children, at least a portion of it. And Dave closed the funeral and celebration of life service with this journal entry. And he looked directly at the family and the kids, and he read Joan's words. To my children, my most cherished possession, I would like to leave you is my faith in Jesus Christ. For with him and nothing else, you can be happy. But without him and with all else, you will never be happy. See, the truth is, in Christ, we are winning, and that sets us free. So then Paul, in this text, let's read verse 20 on, goes on, and he says this. He starts off with a rhetorical question. If you died with Christ to the elemental forces of this world, then why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to its regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destroyed or being used up. They're human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation of wisdom by promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value against fleshly indulgence. And he goes on, he says, so chapter 3, verse 1, So, if you've been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul starts in verse 20 and he asks a rhetorical question. Why then are you living as though you belong to the world? He's saying, friend, why are you living the defeated life then? Why is it this is all true and yet you are still living as though this isn't true? Why, Fred, are you living as though you don't have victory when God's victory parade is coming right beside you? He said, because you're living as though you belong to the world. Here's what the Bible says about the world. The world is in rebellion against God. It disobeyed God, including me and you, and is rebelling against God. That is what the Bible teaches and so then anytime I listen to the world and buy the philosophies and ethics of the world and think that winning the way the world defines it is truly winning, I'm listening to the teaching of the rebellion. And in listening to the teaching of the rebellion, I'm embracing defeat. And I'm letting go of the teaching of Christ, which offers victory, which offers a life that really does win. It's because life in Christ does indeed win. And as we're learning from our sister Joan, winning can begin and be experienced even now. The truth of this is rooted in where we're setting our minds. When you look at chapter 3, verse 2, and Paul says, set your minds on what is above. We're going to unpack this over the next few weeks. Here's what he's simply saying, I think. In Christ, you are winning because your victory and your triumph has been secured by Christ on the cross. Embrace it. Set your mind to that truth. Even if your emotions say you're losing, you are winning. Set your mind to the cross. Even if your failure says you are losing, Christ says you're winning. Set your mind to the cross not to your failure. Even if your finances or your career says that you're losing, Christ says you're winning. Set your mind to the cross, not your lack. 
Even if your spouse or your children or your singleness says that you are losing, Christ says in him you are winning. Set your mind to the cross. If you cannot see God's purpose, focus on his presence. If you cannot feel his presence, trust in his perfection and rest in his promise. His promise that extends from the cross. Because that is where victory was found. And it's where it will always be found. It is what gave Joan the strength to suffer with a sense of hope. See, you can be 94 years old and have lived all of your life in Christ and still live defeated. Your age does not merit your victory. Because Christ merits your victory. Set your mind to the cross. Because in Christ, you're being invited into the victory parade. See, we should all leave here today and make our YouTube videos. Because in Christ, we really are winning. Even if you don't feel as though you're winning, you're winning because of what Christ has done. And so here's what I invite you to do. We have this cross. And on this cross, you're going to notice all these post-it notes. This is from first service. I invited us to think and consider about the things in our lives that whisper defeat into our lives. What are the things in your life that keep you from drawing closer to God? What are the things in your life that try to persuade you and convince you that you are defeated and that despite what God has done in Christ, you're not winning? What are those things? I ask you, I invite you to do, as I don't know how many people did in first service, write them on the post-it note and then come during the song and nail them to the cross because that's exactly what Christ did. He nailed them to the cross. You and your heart lay them down at the cross. And if you feel convicted, bring that post-it note and you attach it to the cross. And you leave it on the cross. And you leave here trusting in the cross that in Christ you're winning. And what was defeating you, what was keeping you from living as though you were winning, was left on the cross this day. I wish you could have seen first service. I think God did something there. 